Hello and welcome back to Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and today I am talking to Dr. Elizabeth Urban about slavery, political power, and the ideology of rulership in early Islam. Dr. Urban earned her PhD from the University of Chicago and is now an assistant professor in the history department at Westchester University in Pennsylvania. Her article, Hagar and Maria, Early Islamic Models of Slave Motherhood, was published in 2017 in the edited volume Concubines and Courtesans, Women in Slavery in Islamic History, published by Oxford University Press. It's an absolutely fantastic article, and it is a great way to bring the Islamic Middle Ages into the scope of what I am doing here on Agnes, and we'll have more about this in seasons to come. Well, Dr. Urban, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's start with some background. What are slave mothers, and what is their place in early Islamic society? So that's a great question, and I think um, it may go without saying for an audience of medievalists, but I think it's important to note, first of all, that when we're talking about slavery in the medieval Islamic world, we should have something very different in our minds than when we're thinking of modern or early modern and modern American transatlantic slavery. One of the ways that Islamic slavery is different from the image many people have of the Americas is that there is a specific legal status. Islamic law provides a legal status for any slave woman who bears her master a child. Um, this woman gets a status called Um Walad. Um in Arabic means mother and Walad means child. So Um Walad means literally mother of a child. And in this is a protected status. The, the first thing you should know about this Um Walad is that she cannot be sold. So when you think of slavery in the Americas, you're thinking of families being ripped apart, mothers being sold away from their children. You cannot sell an umwalid. So you can't break up the family in that way, at least not so easily. Uh, the second thing to know about the umwalid is that her child, if acknowledged, uh, to become an umwalid, her child has to be acknowledged as the, the master's child. The child is freeborn and legitimate. So doesn't inherit the status of the mother, becomes is free is a free child and is treated equally at least according to the eyes of the law as any child born to that man's wife free wife so the wife's child and the concubine's child free equal both equal heirs for example the master's estate and then the final thing you should know about the umwalid is that she is automatically freed according to sunni law at least she is automatically freed upon her master's death the master can choose to free her earlier but she's automatically freed on her master's death that is she's not inherited as part of the estate of the dead master she becomes a free person um this probably happened a lot because concubines according to kind of anecdotal evidence from the sources are a lot younger they're kind of older masters are buying these young concubines and so if their master dies, they, they go free. Basically, the takeaway here is that slave mother, which is, I think, a good translation for Um Walid, a slave mother, is really an, a part of the early Islamic family. She's more of a part of the family structure than she is treated as property, for example. Why do slave mothers become an institutional and an ideological concern within early Islamic society? I think I'm actually going to answer this question by telling you what modern scholars have found problematic about slave mothers, because I think it's still kind of up in the air as to what people at the time actually thought of these slave mothers. But so basically, scholars for a long time 
have really been, they have really had questions about politics in particular and how slave women producing children that are integral parts of the household or freeborn parts of the household, what that has to do with politics. Particularly, let me set some groundwork for you. The highest political institution of the Islamic world is called the caliphate. And the person who holds this position is called the caliph. Um, you can essentially think of the caliph as being the emperor. Scholars have long noted that for the first 100 years after Muhammad died, so we're talking, you know, throughout the mid-600s to the mid-700s, in that period, all caliphs were born of free mothers and free fathers. That goes without saying, but born of free noble women, essentially. Then there enters a period starting in the mid-8th century, starting around 740, continuing on until maybe about 800 or 810, where you get a mixed bag. Some caliphs are born of free women, some caliphs are born of slave women. And then after about 810, 820 or so, almost all caliphs of this period are born of concubines, are born of slave mothers. So there's clearly a changing practice in who can be caliph. Can slave mother, uh, can the children of slave mothers become caliphs? Uh, so basically, for hundreds of years now, scholars have wondered why did it take so long for the children of concubines to become caliphs in the first place? And then once they started becoming caliphs, why did that take on, take hold so much? A common answer, the most common answer that people have given is one that I find completely unconvincing, but I think it's worth telling you it because it'll help you kind of get sense a sense of who the actors are here. I just mentioned that it was around 740 CE when the first children of concubines start to claim the caliphate. Well, it just so happens that around 750 CE, so right around that same time, there's a major regime change, and some would even say a true revolution that happens in the Islamic world. And so people have often attributed this regime change to the changing concubinal practices. So the first dynasty of Islam, called the Umayyad dynasty, or just the Umayyads, uh, they ruled from about 660 to about 750, about 100 years. And uh, they have a reputation. They have a reputation for not being very good Muslims, for being secular, for loving wine and poetry and women more than they loved emulating the practice of Prophet Muhammad, that they were attached to kind of pre-Islamic values. And particularly for our purposes, their reputation is as Arab chauvinists, that they did not like the children of slave concubines, that they did not like non-Arab Muslims, that they did not like anyone who was not a purebred Arab. Um, and then conversely, the, the regime that took over in 750, 749 technically, but 750, it's called the Abbasid dynasty or the Abbasids. And they are considered or have been, their stereotypical image is as much more pious and religious and they're cosmopolitan. They celebrate the, the universal scope of Islam. Islam isn't just for the Arabs anymore. It's for non-Arabs and children of slave mothers and for everybody. I think that this is bunk, that A, it's projecting modern notions of national identity and ethnic like, racial prejudice onto the past. Secondly, the Abbasids are the ones who wrote all the sources that we have. We don't have any, or we have very, very few sources from the Umayyad perspective. So 
doesn't strike me as very surprising that the Abbasids should present themselves as these great Muslims and present the Umayyads as these terrible Muslims. So I think we have to reject simple regime change as the reason for this change. I also think that this this explanation of why slave concubines' children started becoming caliphs Basically, they say, well, the Abbasids didn't have any prejudice against these children of slave concubines, and so they were fine with them being caliphs, is that the first couple of slave concubine men who became caliphs were Umayyads and became Umayyad caliphs, and that there were several early Abbasid caliphs who were not born of slave concubines and who, in fact, this still seems to have been maybe a problem for them. So I, I think this is a broader change that is happening that all of society is having to face, Umayyads, Abbasids, and others are all having to figure out what to do with the children of slave concubines and can they become caliphs. And it's not so easy as to say the Umayyads hated them and the Abbasids loved them. So to bring that all back to your original question, which was why do slave mothers become an institutional and ideological concern, it's because there is a lot of controversy around the mid-8th century, so 740 to 760 CE, about whether the children of slave mothers can become caliph or not. And in order to justify that, yes, indeed, they can become caliph, they invoke models of slave mothers from the Islamic tradition. And so here we see that slave mothers are actually being used to change political ideologies. They're actually integral to these changing political ideologies. And so slave mothers matter because their children make them matter because their children, the children of slave mothers, I mean, are having to deal with who are their mothers and deal with the fact of their being born of slave concubines in order to justify their political ascendancy. And what are the texts that you use to access these slave mothers and the attitudes about them? I use chronicles. I use biographies. I use narrative historical sources. Um, that is not documentary sources, not coins and epigraphy and archaeology, but narrativized sources to learn about two slave-born men who are invoking slave mothers at this time. The problem, the reason I'm being kind of wishy-washy about this is because I'm using sources that are all penned in the 9th and 10th century. If you'll recall, I'm talking about people who lived in the 8th century. So these are later sources. These are sources that have been shaped by authors to tell a particular story, to have a particular moral, to put some people in good lights and other people in bad lights. And so there's a lot of historiography and narrative literary analysis that has to go into me using these sources as historical sources. But I'm using sources like um, the most kind of famous and prominent source that people use to study early Islamic history is something called the History of Prophets and Kings by a guy called At-Tabari. At-Tabari died in 923 CE. So we see here, you know, he's a 10th century guy. And other similar sources. That's a that's a chronicle. He goes year by year by year what happened in this year. I also use a kind of source that is called a biographical dictionary. Biographical dictionary is kind of a who's who of early Islamic notables. 
and they will have, you know, once you kind of use the chronicles to identify someone as having been interesting or that you want to know more about them, you can use these biographical dictionaries to look them up and find out more about them. So, for example, I use a biographical dictionary uh, called Ibn Saad's Greatest Generations. Ibn Saad died in 845, so closer, or maybe 850, mid-9th century. So that's a closer source to, to the people that I'm really studying. And what do these texts have to say about slave mothers? I'm really excited to answer that. So what these sources tell us about slave mothers is that they tell the stories of two early Islamic caliphs or pretenders to the caliphate who invoke slave mothers to justify their right to rule. One of the things that motivated me finding or the one of the questions I asked that led me to find these two men in the first place, these two men who invoke slave mothers, is just a simple question that I had, which is one of the women I'm going to talk about in a moment is Hagar. Hagar was probably familiar to many people in the audience uh, from the biblical tradition. She's the concubine of, of Abraham. And one of the things that I wondered is, why aren't early Islamic slave-born men invoking Hagar all the time? That is, Hagar seems to me to be a ready-made example from the Islamic tradition of why it's good and why it's okay and why it's even maybe a positive thing to have been born of a slave mother. Because in the Islamic tradition, Hagar, well, and the biblical tradition, Hagar is the mother of Ishmael, or Ismail in Arabic. And according to Islamic tradition, Ishmael is a prophet and is the ancestor of the Arabs. So Jews are the descendants of Isaac. Arabs are the descendants of Ishmael. And so if already this idea is that, well, Hagar is the mother of Ishmael and Ishmael is the mother of the Arabs, why aren't slave-born men invoking Hagar from day one? And what I think I found is that she didn't really become ideologized in that way, made into a kind of a point of ideology until these these men start to invoke her in this way. And so what I found when I started actually looking for people who were invoking Hagar, I found in these narrative sources and biographical sources a guy, a famous guy, called Zayd ibn Ali. Zayd ibn Ali is a revolutionary who he revolted against the Umayyad dynasty in 740 CE. So the Umayyads were gone by 749. So Zayd is part of the final decades of the Umayyad period were full of people trying to rebel and revolt against the Umayyads. But Zayd is one of them. Zayd ibn Ali is, this might be a bit of an anachronistic term, is a Shiite. Zayd ibn Ali is descended from... Ali ibn Abi Talib, who's the first Shiite imam, he represents the family of Ali, who are really some of the people who feel like the Umayyads are bad guys. And Zayd ibn Ali is born of a slave concubine. And so he's this Shiite rebel against the Umayyad caliphate. He's claiming that he has the right to rule. And the currently reigning Umayyad caliph says... Zayd, why are you even daring to claim the caliphate for yourself? The caliphate is not suitable for the children of slave concubines. And so Zayd responds by invoking Hagar. And this is the first 
person I found when I did searches for Hagar in indexes. This is the earliest invocation I found of Hagar. Of Zaid essentially says, how dare you? They kind of get into a how dare you match. How dare you imply that I'm not good enough to be the caliph just because my mother is a concubine because God chose Hagar to be the mother of Ishmael and Ishmael is a prophet, and Ishmael is the ancestor of the Arabs, including the ancestor of the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So by insulting me and my mother, you're insulting Hagar, Abraham, all Arabs ever, and Muhammad. So he invokes this the figure of, of Hagar and of Ishmael to throw the insult kind of back on Caliph Hisham. And one of the things, there's lots of different versions of this account of Zaid and what he says to Hisham. And one of the things I find really fascinating is that some of the accounts are pretty straightforward. He just says, Hagar was the mother of Ishmael, and that didn't stop God from sending, you know, Ishmael from Hagar's womb. But sometimes some of the accounts make it clear that this is not just a mere political ideology that Zaid is using to justify his own caliphate, that this is actually a broader ideology that has to do with what role mothers play in determining someone's identity. So let me quote you actually one of the, one of the sources. So in one of the accounts, Zaid responds, mothers serve no purpose for men other than to reach the goal, i.e. of bearing children. And in another one, a different account, Zaid says, if there were some deficiency in Um Walad's, then God would not have sent Ishmael as a prophet while his mother was Hagar. So these to me make it clear that this is not just Zaid saying, I deserve the caliphate. This is Zaid saying, mothers don't matter when you're trying to decide who is noble, who can be caliph, who can be a prophet, who can be an Arab. Mothers don't matter. So, so this is the the first one. This is the first story, and it's found in several different texts, chronicles, and biographies of the chronologically earliest person to invoke Hagar. This is Zaid, and that's in 740. So it's clear that Zaid didn't solve this problem once and for all, that the question of can a concubine-born man still be, be caliph was still a question 20 years later after there had been a regime change. And so the person who's now having to defend his right to the caliphate is, in fact, the Abbasid caliph himself, the second, second Abbasid caliph, whose name is Al-Mansur. Al-Mansur is born of a concubine. And it's worth noting that the person who's challenging him, the person who's challenging Al-Mansur's right to rule as a concubine-born man, is not an Umayyad. It is a, a Shiite of a branch of the family called the Hassanid uh, branch. And so, again, it's clear to me that this doesn't easily break down into, oh, the Umayyads are chauvinists and the Abbasids are, are cosmopolitan. This is clearly a society-wide question. But so in this case, a Hassanid rebel, a Shiite rebel called Anefs Zakiya, which means the pure soul, he rises up against the Abbasid caliph, Al-Mansur. And Anefs Zakiya says that he is the purest most noble Arab, and that the non-Arabs, and the Arabic word for this is ajam, the non-Arabs have, have had no influence on me, have put down no roots in me. 
And this is what he says. Well, this is why he, one of the reasons why he's rising up against the Abbasids. And the Abbasid Caliph al-Mansur actually invokes a, a different woman to justify his claim to the caliphate. And this woman is called Maria, Maria the Copt. Maria the Copt is a really shadowy figure. She deserves, and in fact has received, a scholarship all on her own, talking about her, because people have argued, who is she? Where, where, where is she from? Did she really exist? Was she Muhammad's wife or was she Muhammad's concubine? Suffice it to say, Maria the Copt is a controversial figure. She, in my view, seems to be very clearly modeled on Hagar. I personally have some questions about whether historically she existed as it actually happened, you know. But for the purposes of this article, that's moot. The purposes for, for the purposes of this article, this man, Al-Mansur, is invoking her. So she's real for, for him. Mara the Copt does seem to have been modeled on Hagar, though. She is similar to Hagar in lots of ways. She is Muhammad's concubine, uh, who bears Muhammad a son called Ibrahim, which means Abraham. So we already see intersectionality here between the Abraham story and Hagar and Muhammad's story with Ibrahim, his son Abraham. Her child, Ibrahim, actually died in infancy. Muhammad had no male heirs who lived to adulthood. All of his children who lived to adulthood were females. But that doesn't matter to our caliph al-Mansur. He invokes Maria and her son Ibrahim in order to justify his own right to the caliphate and, and more broadly his position as a noble Arab with good lineage. So I'm going to read a little bit of what he says in response. So when the revolutionary Anafsa Zakiya, this is in 762, when Anafsa Zakiya challenges Al-Mansur and says that Al-Mansur doesn't deserve to rule and Anafsa Zakiya claims for himself that he's the most noble Arab, this is what Al-Mansur says, and this is an exchange of letters that has been recorded for us. He says, You are proud that the non-Arabs never bore you, meaning that you have no blood from Um Walids. But you have boasted over someone who is better than you in genealogy from beginning to end, Ibrahim, the son of the messenger of God, peace be upon him, whose mother was Maria the Copt. He goes on then to insult Anafsazikian in other ways and telling him how much better his slave-born cousins were than he himself is and, you know, goes on to engage in some polemics about Shiite versus Abbasid ideology. But for my purposes, I'm really interested in the way that he invokes Maria the Copt here. Basically, not only to justify his own right to rule, but again, I'm really interested in the way what Al-Mansur is really calling out there is the fact that Al-Nafsa Zakiya has said, the non-Arabs have don't have any roots in me. And that's what Al-Mansur says, you're wrong about that, basically, that you you have an old, outdated, non-prophetic, non-Islamic view of who counts as a non-Arab. And you've insulted the prophet and his family. And again, by implication, he doesn't come right out and say this, but by implication, an Arab is an Arab if his father is an Arab. It doesn't matter what 
Umwalad or what concubine or what quote unquote non-Arab mother you have, that that is an old and outdated notion of, of how lineage works and that the prophet Muhammad himself has shown that that lineage, that you can have children with concubines or with free wives and that that is acceptable practice. And what are the broader implications of the invocation of these two figures to legitimize the sons of slave mothers in early Islamic society? I think sometimes when people think about what women's history is, they think about a history of domesticity, a history of the home, a history of families, a history of sexuality. But here, it's, I think, so important to realize that women's history is also political history, that women are impacting the very ideologies that undergird the caliphate. They're also changing the nature of the caliphate itself, just in that now caliphs are being born of slave women. And so you can't understand political theory and political ideology and ideas about how does lineage work if you're not taking into account slave women. They, they are integral to understanding how these ideologies work and how, they, how these ideologies change. I think also, in some ways, it's really simply worth flipping over the question or turning over or problematizing the question of why the late emergence of the concubine-born man, and instead ask, what does that tell us about the changing role of the concubine herself and how she's getting integrated into the Islamic world and how people are, are having to invoke new religious ideologies about Maria and Hagar, for example, to account for these women. Uh, maybe put more bluntly, I think people have often overlooked women and particularly slave women as agents of historical change, that they're often treated women and particularly slave women are treated as the victims of change or the passive recipients of change, as opposed to the drivers of change. And so I just think it's important to recognize that you, you need to take into account what's going on with slave women in order to understand what's going on with slave-born caliphs at this time. The last thing I think it's important to say is just what I aim to do with my work, not just with this article, but with other articles and, and my monograph I'm working on, is to really historicize slavery in the Islamic world and historicize concubinage or concubines in the Islamic world. I think there's a tendency that probably the historians listening to this uh, podcast will be all too familiar with to want to essentialize things. Um, in my field, in the is Islamic studies, this is just, you see this all the time. It's one of the big problems of the way people talk about Islam today in the world, in the media, is that what does Islam say about X topic? What does Islam say about women's rights? What What is Islam's stance towards slavery? And from my perspective as a historian, those questions are ridiculous and unanswerable because the practice of slavery in Islamic history changes depending on time and place. And one of the things my work here shows is that there was a changing situation that had to do with concubinage. And so ideology changed to fit the changing historical circumstance. That the answer to what does, I mean, to already the ridiculous question, what does Islam say about concubinage is different in the year 720 
than it is in the year 820 because there has been a change. Dr. Urban, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about your research. Well, thanks for having me on your show. It was fun to talk about my research. Well, that is it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find me and the Agnes Forum at claytemplemedia.com. This is the final episode of season two, but I will be back in September with more interviews with great scholars. And in the meantime, you can check out some of the other shows on the network, such as Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast, and the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast. And until next season, Awe Wale.